This meeting is being held by WebEx pursuant to the governor's executive order and mayoral emergency proclamation suspending and modifying requirements for an in-person meeting. During the coronavirus disease emergency, this committee will convene remotely until the committee is legally authorized to meet in person. Public comments will be available on each agenda item. Each speaker will be allowed two minutes to speak. Comments or opportunity to speak during the public comment period are available by calling 415-655-0001, access code 2491-132-1309, then pound and then pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussion, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, thou star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your television or radio. Alternatively, you may submit your public comment via email to ocoh.con at sfgov.org, and it will be forwarded to the committee and will be included as part of the official files. Please note that this meeting is being recorded and will be available at sfgovtv.org. Thank you so much, Secretary Hom, and welcome everyone. It is Wednesday, November 16th, 2022, to our, our City, Our Home Oversight Committee retreat. Um, we have all been really craving time uh, to reflect and to engage with each other um, in discussion and th think strategically about our work ahead for next year. So for the next two days, um, it's going to be an opportunity for us to all sort of think together about what are our priorities, looking at the current climate um, with our budget and just being in community with each other, which is really exciting. Um, we'll be drawing together ideas from various initiatives um, that inform the vision for ending homelessness in San Francisco. And we'll be using our needs assessment to deepen our understanding of the needs of people experiencing homelessness. Um, we'll be also contributing to a citywide um, homeless strategic plan. And um, yeah, we know there's gonna be some challenges ahead. So we need to identify what are our priorities um, for the investments for next year. Um, so really excited for our next two days together. And with that, we're just going to call to order with roll call. Member Catalano. Here, good morning. Good morning. Member Cun uh, Cunningham Denning. He, uh, yes, here. Great. Vice Chair D'Antonio. Absent. Member Friedenbach. Here. Officer Ledbetter. Here. Member Miller. Absent. Member Reggio. Absent at this point. Chair Williams. Sure. Great. All right. So we do have quorum and we'll now do our um, land acknowledgement. Um, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatu Shalone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As indigenous stewards of the land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatu Shalone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. So thank you so much. So I already discussed what we're going to be looking at for the next two days. So I think we're going to jump right into it. I know we have a lot to cover. Um, and so I'm going to turn it over to Jesse Schumann for our needs assessment. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad uh, to be here with you. It's going to take me just a second to get the deck up. I realized that if I made a master deck, it renumbered all the slides for the needs assessment. And I thought it might be important to, to sort of have the page numberings match what you have. 
version control issue. Okay, so give me one second. Um, okay, let me try this and you can tell me if it allows me to show this. Can you see the needs assessment? I know it's my whole screen, but is the needs assessment showing? Yes, and it's not in presentation mode, but it's showing. Excellent. I'm going to go to presentation mode and get started. Super. And yes, we are, I am communicating with um, member Reggio and uh, member D'Antonio, uh, and they are problem solving and <laughs> aiming to join us um, as soon as they possibly can. Okay, so I'm going to provide an overview of the needs assessment, which you received at the end of the day on Monday. And my goal is to highlight some of the most significant findings in preparation for a robust an energetic conversation among the members. There will be a few moments uh, where we can pause and ask questions or, or different things like that. Um, and I'm not planning on presenting every single slide. Uh, it is long uh, and we wanna make sure that we get to uh, the conversation and the discussion, uh, which is really uh, the purpose of the retreat. So, okay. So what is the purpose of the needs assessment? The, this needs assessment fulfills the legislative requirement to assess the needs of the homeless population and the needs associated with uh, these demographic characteristics. This needs assessment is the first and it was developed over the course of a year uh, with multiple opportunities for the committee and the departments to give input and constructive feedback. Uh, we can talk about, I think we've gone over those several times, so I'm going to uh, move along and we can talk about it more if you're interested um, or if you have questions. As you know, the fund uh, and the OCO initiative uses a broad definition of homelessness as people who lacked, lack a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. And this definition uh, aligns, it maps very nicely onto the four-part federal definition that's used by different components of HUD. And so the deck you probably noticed references the categories throughout as a way of sort of indicating um, whenever possible, like who specifically are we talking about? I'm having trouble advancing these slides. Um, no single city department or agency addresses the crisis of homelessness or its root causes. Um, across the full definition. Um, and so as a result, we've had to pull together um, information, source information from a, a wide variety of sources, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, most obviously, but also the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, the Department of Public Health, the Planning Department, Department on the Status of Women, San Francisco Unified School District, and the Human Services Agency. Um, and so I just want to notice and acknowledge that solutions to address the needs of people experiencing homelessness will require collaborative efforts um, across a, a wide variety, right? It's going to take a lot of stakeholders to get this done. Um, there are currently going on, as Chair Williams recognized, a variety of planning efforts related to homelessness. 
um, underway now. And tomorrow, this committee is going to have an opportunity uh, to be engaged by the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing as stakeholders and offer guidance in their citywide homeless strategic plan development, which is really exciting. Um, the needs assessment contributes to this effort really by centering the needs of people experiencing homelessness. Um, and I just want to pause there for a second because I really think that understanding the scale and variation of need among people experiencing homelessness is the starting place for answering some of the most uh, pressing questions about resource allocation. So examples of that, how much PSH does the system need? Um, starts with the question about what proportion of the population, like how many people need PSH? How much shelter? Very similar. So the specific numbers will be better addressed through the department's modeling and strategic planning processes. Uh, but the needs assessment frames important questions about the relationship between people's needs and system resources. Um, and those questions will contribute to the modeling of resources needed to strengthen the response to homelessness. Okay, so what does data show about who is homeless in San Francisco? Uh, the root cause of homelessness, of the homelessness crisis is social inequality and in particular structural racism. And I'm saying this because the data across all forms of homelessness show an overrepresentation of people of color. And I look at overrepresentation as one way that the data is telling us and reflecting the existence of barriers to housing stability, barriers to per obtaining permanent housing, barriers to retaining housing over time. Right, so that overrepresentation is evidence that a group is disproportionately and adversely impacted by a policy, uh, institutional practices, cultural norms, um, and of course, this is both present, but also deeply rooted in the past. And so, a good example is the practice of redlining, which has been well documented and 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 discussed, particularly in the last, I would say, five five to ten years, which really built racial discrimination into uh, the, the landscape of the city and enabled the divestment of opportunity from communities of color, right? So it was an opportunity to, you know, it impacted uh, and benefited some communities, the sort of their ability to accumulate and transfer wealth across generations, but it also uh, made it, exceedingly difficult for other communities to accumulate and transfer wealth, right? And I think this history of redlining, you know, it, um, I, I like that I can show you a map and we can kind of see graphically how this maps onto the city and how it's sort of impact, it's enduring impact over time. Um, and I just want to notice, right, that the, the history of redlining needs to be put into a broader context of the displacement of native people and the theft of their land, as well as Japanese internment, among myriad other instances of discrimination um, that happens at the intersection of space, land, and power. Okay, and given that history, it is not surprising at all uh, that people of color are so massively overrepresented in the homeless population. You can see here um, the point in time count survey responses in orange, the San Francisco general population in blue, um, 
black people identifying as black or African American are represented in the homeless population at a rate six times, uh, you know, the general population. So really uh, striking. Uh, Hispanic Latinx almost twice uh, as often. And then you can also see Native Alaskan, uh, American Indian, and Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islanders show really similar uh, patterns of overrepresentation in the homeless population compared to the general population of San Francisco. Um, it's really powerful to hear the impact of structural racism resonating in the personal experiences of homelessness. So we've talked about this a few different times, um, but this is the first opportunity you're having to really see it that, you know, analysts in the controller's office, uh, we did a, a short cycle of focus groups and an analyzed the data coding themes uh, in that qualitative data. Um, across interviews, all right, and across participants. Um, the analysis identified patterns um, in individual personal stories that linked homelessness with poor health outcomes, with the racial wealth gap, uh, with strained or what is in the sociological literature is sometimes called uh, impoverished social networks, um, and an avoidance of administrative systems that's rooted in kind of this mis distrust, mistrust, uh, that systems will work in their favor, um, and really high rates of involvement in child protection, um, as well as mass incarceration and barriers to employment. Uh, it's important to highlight the way structural racism creates economic barriers that put housing out of reach, not only for people on fixed incomes, but increasingly for low-wage workers. Um, so just want to notice that, that that was really clearly um, the issue that people were were talking about and thinking about as they, um, you know, actively engaged with their experience of homelessness and with really resolving, figuring out a solution uh, to their experience of homelessness. Um, there's a lot more in the needs assessment, and I, you know, I regret that we can't go through all of it today um, or right now in, in detail. Um, but again, encourage, I hope that you've had a chance to look at it. And if you haven't yet, please go back and do, um, you know, uh, there's a lot to learn about the needs and barriers experienced by particular uh, subgroups, such as LGBTQI plus community, youth, older adults, as well as the impact of disabling health conditions. Um, and just worth noticing that the overrepresentation of people of color across these uh, dem other demographic characteristics continues to define uh, experiences within these populations. But I wanna make sure that we follow the thread through to all four types of homelessness that are addressed by OCO. Um, so we've talked about this uh, in the past, but the intersection of racism and poverty remains really salient um, for households that are ex experiencing housing insecurity and overcrowding, such as those that are living doubled up, uh, which is a particular concern of this, of this body. Um, API and Latinx communities are more likely to live in doubled up conditions uh, and sort of be in that uh, overcrowded uh, edge. Um, Black and Latinx are, are more likely to experience housing insecurity. So we're still seeing 
um, even as we sort of move from literal homelessness to uh, into more precariously housed, insecure, doubled up, overcrowded situations, that theme and that consistency of uh, overrepresentation among people of color and really extraordinary levels of poverty. Um, families living in SROs are encountering economic barriers that are related to limited English proficiency, immigration status. We're seeing disproportionately high number, right, disproportionately high numbers of people of color um, and immigrants in this group, which is slightly different from what we see in the literally homeless population, uh, but still sort of captured in this umbrella. Um, and I pulled in some of the um, qualitative work that's been done um, beyond those focus groups, right? So we've had public comment, we've had other forums and, and opportunities to hear from people who are living in, um, in some of these uh, situations in SRO families and, and people who are living in hotels or living in doubled up conditions uh, and their, um, their experiences are really, are really powerful. Uh, victims of violence, victims of reported family violence are disproportionately black and Latina, which I think is important to notice, um, you know, given that domestic violence occurs in all racial and ethnic groups and regardless of socioeconomic standing, we still see that engagement with uh, systems and institutions disproportionately black, disproportionately high numbers of people who are black and uh, Latinx. And we did, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but victims of violence are included in, um, in the population served literally homeless and victims of fleeing domestic violence are served uh, by the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. We had a number of people who were survivors and talked about their experiences in the focus groups. So there's an important opportunity here, I think, for the committee to really seriously and substantively, substantively engage with structural racism as a root cause of homelessness. Um, I think you know one question that I have is how might or how would a racial equity framework change the conversation about needs? How do we think about needs and barriers differently um, when when we're looking at them through this lens of, of racial disparities and racial equity? Um, and this brings us to sort of a, a, a pause moment. Um, if there are questions, um, I can pause for a second. And I can't see anything, so someone else is going to look at the... I, I don't see any hands this time. Just oh, see some okay. Oh, just, oh. I had one, sorry. I was... Hand raised thing. Um, oh, just the focus groups you're referring to were those outside? Those were separate from the focus groups we did as part of OCO, or those are the ones? Are you referring to the ones we did? Or so no, I was referring to the ones that were done over the summer, the sort of abbreviated cycle. I did review and look um, a number, like several times, at the at the summary that was written up um, as part of the. Um, the groups that I think Member Friedenbach and maybe Vice Chair D'Antonio did in the spring. Um, it was 
very difficult to sort of um, bring them into the analysis because they're it, the data wasn't collected in the same way. It just was hard to sort of integrate these two data sets. Um, but I, there is a lot in there that is valuable and those are available on the website. I am trying to sort of create a better way for people to be able to find um, some of this like firsthand um, data and resources. Um, in the website, so TBD still working on that, but uh, just following the line from your your previous comment a couple of meetings ago. Okay, so just to be so these were ones that controller's office did that were like to, to, was was the um, the data chair or the um, community input chair part part of that, or that was just something you guys kind of yeah. Did? So this is. This is something that I talked about with um, the data officer mentioned several times at committee, talked about uh, with the chair, shared questions, um, okay. and, and that we moved forward with. It was a very limited set, so I do not at all want to represent that sort of the work is done and we can just all move on. Um, I think it's more of a beginning place, um, but it was sort of uh, you know, as you can see, like we're really trying to to reflect sort of who is saying saying what and how we can sort of amplify uh, lived uh, those sort of racial identities uh, within the data, um, okay. and that's one of the things that made it a little bit challenging to use uh, the the other data set. Okay, gotcha. All right, thank you. Mm -hmm. Others? Okay. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I feel like I've talked to you a lot about <laughs> estimating the population, like how, what is the scale of this problem? Um, how many people and households do we think um, experience homelessness in a year? But I do want to note that I've added this slide to reflect the number of people estimated to experience homelessness each year by household composition. So earlier I had just this one, right, which showed that families make up about 10% of the households. Um, but as Member Friedenbach pointed out, a larger share of the people experiencing homelessness. So added that in. Um, and not a lot has changed here. So I'm just going to move along. There is one thing that has changed. So thinking about inflow and homelessness prevention. Um, um, we did work, I worked closely with the data and performance team and the consultants who are doing modeling for the department or with the department um, of homelessness and supportive housing to come up with a way to better estimate the point in time count. You know, I, I think people widely recognize that the point in time count is, is kind of an undercount. It gives us a floor. Um, of, of how many people are homeless at a point in time. And so we did sort of a lit review and came up with a strategy. Um, and so the current best thinking is that about 7,700, 7,700 households are homeless at a point in time, right? Um, and that's adjusted for uncounted, unsheltered people. It's about 1,300 households that were added. Um, more than the point in time count total of 6,407. Um, and that means that inflow is estimated at as many as 9,000 households. 
um, about 7,900 of those newly homeless households are adults, and that includes youth. And about 1,100 households entering homelessness are families with children. And again, that's including parenting youth. Forgot how to move it forward. Okay, here we go. <laughs> this beautiful chart, um, I just love all of the color um, and want to give credit. So this beautiful chart was made by Julieta Barcaglioni who, uh, from HSH. Hugo Ramirez from MoCD, Catherine Gale at Focus Strategies, and Amy Sawyer in the mayor's office all worked on creating uh, this uh, really lovely, lovely chart. It shows the continuum of homelessness prevention from eviction prevention at the top, um, you know, to strategies that will work for people who are, you know, imminent risk of homelessness doubled up, people, who, and then at the bottom, people who have become literally homeless. And then on the right, you will see the number of slots either delivered last year as a sort of an index of, of what we can expect for this year or anticipated uh, to be provided during this fiscal year, the current one, fiscal year 22-23. Um, it's worth noting that even if you add all of these up, it's quite a bit fewer than the 9,000 households we're anticipating to enter homelessness. And I also want to note, I think um, Julieta and Noelle have made, Noelle Simmons have made this comment that this level of resourcing is much greater than what we expect in the future. There's still money coming through the state, that, right, in different places uh, that's going into prevention, uh, but some of those funding sources will be disappearing and we can expect far lower levels uh, of, of service available. So uh, we're thinking about um, all right, into the qualitative work. The most common cause of homelessness um, across, you know, from our coding uh, for people of all ages was the breakdown of relationships that may otherwise have prevented homelessness. People were really clear um, and talked a lot about the ways in which um, either, right, there was sort of a rupture or a break in some sort of relationship that either led to homelessness or, you know, economic factors and pressures, uh, or probably and instead of or, economic factors and, and, and pressures really um, led to a fragmentation, um, right, of, of, uh, of households. Um, I was particularly drawn to this, uh, the second um, quote down, uh, which was a person who had, there were five people working in the family and they couldn't afford rent. And so they all went their separate ways. Um, focus group participants were, were clear uh, that um, prevention services need to be accessible and timely. Um, people really struggled to get the kind of help that they needed in time to prevent them from becoming homeless. Um, and, and, as we were sort of working on the coding for the qualitative work, I kept coming back in my mind to this idea of like, where is the social safety net, right? That there just isn't, in addition to there not being sort of family and friend networks that could have prevented, um, sort of held people up um, for, for these folks, there also weren't like safety net resources that were um, accessible and adequate and, and sort of able to be uh, quickly accessed to, to prevent homelessness. Right, so it was all different kinds of programs and services 
uh, that people describe trying to get into and without success. Uh, solutions, people offered solutions that ranged from flex funds for rent um, or short-term shallow subsidies, right, that lasted, um, you know, not, not a permanent subsidy, but a short-term shallow subsidy, uh, to really like lifting up some structural barriers and solutions, right? So early intervention uh, for children, life skills classes. This was particularly um, salient among young people, feeling like they really needed, they were missing a lot of information and knowledge about how to um, avoid financial pitfalls, how to be you know, safe and smart, uh, with their money, um, rent regulation, right-sizing wages, access to better jobs, simplifying systems so that people can, you know, get on the lease before um, and avoid sort of catastrophic loss of housing. Um, and I will, let's see. So just a, a couple of things, right? So in summary, like homelessness prevention is an emerging field. The work that's happening in San Francisco to develop homelessness prevention reflects a lot of what we heard from people experiencing homelessness and the challenges are are still are significant, right? Like bringing this intervention to scale is, is gonna be a big lift. Strengthening connections to the social safety net, targeting neighborhoods and communities that are most at risk like those are all uh, really big and challenging uh, for this emerging uh, field. Um, and I think also like, since we're here talking about Our City, Our Home, like um, from, I was thinking about like, well, where could the Our City, Our Home funds have the greatest impact, right? Given all of the things that we just talked about. And so I hope that when we get to the discussion that you guys will, that might be something that we talk about. Um, and I will pause again, because I'm at sort of a, a moment to see if there are any questions. I'm not sure if folks have questions. I don't see any hands, but. Chair, I think I have my, attempted to raise my hand. This is Member Catalano. Is that Member Catalano? Yes. Um, I'll, I'll just jump in. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse, so much. First off, just wanted to share that the um, combination of the, you know, qualitative and quantitative data and the quotes from the survey participants is really effective um, and throughout the presentation. So I wanted to thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> also, I've got some sort of flu situation going on, so I'm not the most cogent today. So just apologies in advance. Um, but two questions um, on the inflow uh, numbers first with that 9,000 sort of estimated inflow per year. I'm still not clear how that number, how we get to that number. Is that the 20,000 total minus the adjusted um, point in time? Uh, is that is that what that is or is that a separate calculation? No, yeah, so the 20,000 is the number of people estimated. So there's a conversion to households. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then yes, and then, you know, using, um, when we use just the number of households at the point in time count, that like 6,400 um, number, it just didn't, uh, the balance didn't seem quite right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, to, to then, uh, right, say that, uh, I don't know, it pushed it pushed the people, the number of households becoming homeless, um, like to like 11,000 or, or, or something like that. And that, 
um, that didn't align with other data that we had, in, right? And so we thought, you know, we really need to account for the point in time count um, and, and try to bring some of these, you know, there are, it's a patchwork of data sources that we're trying to like piece together uh, to make to, to get a sense of, what, of what's really going out there. Um, and so that's why you also see this sort of like roughly, like as many as, right? Um, yes. And then for the um, colorful graph with the various types of interventions, um, I thought the numbers on the side were, are those Prop C funded? Numbers, That's I guess those point. numbers, unless our, unless our funding changes, would stay the same, right? There's additional federal uh, funding yes. that has gone towards yeah. the dimensions, but. That's right. I, for the most part, I was able to get sort of data about what C was doing uh, projected going forward, less sort of certainty or, I, I don't know, um, I wasn't able to get sort of a, a full picture of sort of like, what do we think beyond C? Mm -hmm. um, but yes, that's a good point. Uh, sorry about that. I can make a note as well in the slide. Thank you. Chair. <clears throat> I'm a Reggio. So you I can't it. see the hands. <laughs> I can. <laughs> oh, okay, thank you. Uh, and apologies for being late. I had a Wi-Fi problem that was fixed. Uh, I also had a question about that inflow, and I think, Jesse, I think you spoke to us on that in a presentation a couple months ago. I get where it's adjusting for the number of households rather than the individuals, but can you remind us of what factors went into that projection? How did you come, I mean, not then, how did you, where, where does the projection of 20,000 people or 16,000 households come from? Yeah, so we used several different methods. There are really only a couple of methods out there for attempting to annualize from the point in time count, and we've talked about that. Um, and so we, you know, did those calculations. Um, the point in time count is showing really a lot, like inflow increasing, right? That people are becoming homeless at a higher rate than in the past. Um, and so there was kind of question about that, but there was also, I think, a need to kind of align with other data sources. So as an example, coordinate, you know, a lot of people access coordinated entry. And so if we're getting numbers that are smaller than what we have through coordinated entry of the number of households presenting, you know, it sort of calls things into question. And so the way that we were able to do this was, um, Yes, to kind of look at like, okay, well, the pit count is saying this, and our systems are saying this, and you know, the DPH records are saying this, and can we come to sort of uh, some solutions that are ballpark, right? That sort of harmonize all of these sources. There also we used there was new-ish research that was used um, during COVID to really estimate how, like, what is the scale that we're gonna to have to, you know, of, of the COVID response that's gonna be needed uh, if we're, you know, to engage homeless people effectively. Um, and so we used a paper um, that was referenced by Dennis Culhane, and I'm forgetting the citation, but I can certainly find it and share it with people if they're interested. But what was very handy was that the, the way of estimating the undercount of the pit count, they actually had looked at San Francisco. Um, 
they had looked at California communities and San Francisco was one of them that they had administrative data for. So um, that was very handy for sort of estimating and then cross-referencing against, against other administrative data available in the city. Thank you. That's more information than you wanted maybe. No, no, no. <laughs> and I, also I, less. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Thank you. Should, should we move along? Additional hands with it, folks want to go for it. Uh, I think you can continue, Jesse. Okay, super duper. Um, so what do people need while they're homeless and what resources are available to help? Um, this is a question that we get a lot um, and that's sort of like in the air, right? Um, how much shelter does the system need? And it's an important question and it's a question that I'm not going to be answering. Um, but I bring it up to really emphasize that the amount of shelter that is needed depends upon how quickly or slowly households can move into permanent housing, um, either through the system, through a system-provided uh, resource like PSH, um, or in another way, right? Uh, people um, find, right, find, find many ways, uh, solutions to their experience of homelessness. Um, but if people can't move through and resolve their homelessness, then existing shelter resources are gonna serve fewer households. Unsheltered homelessness will increase. Demand for really high cost shelter beds will increase. Um, and, and not just demand for the high cost ones, but just noticing that shelter is a very high cost uh, solution. It's not even a solution. High cost temporary uh, situation. Um, and then you know the length of time that people remain homeless will increase as well. Um, so it's really important sort of strengthening that system thinking to be able to think about how permanent housing investments and shelter investments are linked um, and that adequate outflow, adequate access to permanent housing is really important to having a, an efficient and effective uh, shelter and crisis intervention system. I'm going to pass over these slides about inventory uh, to get to um, this is that we are seeing really long lengths of time homeless, which I think speaks to barriers and challenges that people are facing in finding ways to resolve their homelessness. At the same time, the data shows and the focus groups reinforce that there's quite a lot of people with shorter lengths of time homeless. Um, and so this chart uh, shows length of length length of this episode of homelessness, right? So it's, that's a question that's asked at um, program enrollment. Um, how long have you been homeless this time? Um, and it, it shows the responses um, broken out by adults and families. And you can see that there is there are a lot of people on this one year or longer trajectory. 31% of adults and 24% of families um, had been homeless, reported being homeless for a year or longer. Um, at the same time, right? If you look at the shorter, the early, the left side of this chart, right? You'll see 23% of adults and 24% of families in this data have been homeless for less than a month, right? Which is, which is a similarly large section of the population. And 40% of adults, 46% of families in this data set had been homeless for less than three months. 
Um, and so I bring this up because these two groups within the population of people who are experiencing homelessness are, are, are likely to have different needs. Um, people with shorter lengths of time homeless, households with shorter lengths of time homeless, potentially that means, um, you know, that they, um, they'll have more supports, right? They might be able to um, get back into housing more quickly with, without, you know, um, they may have more resources at their disposal, um, relationships or uh, jobs, um, and may be able to transition back into housing with, uh, you know, relatively few sort of supports uh, and support services. Um, by contrast, right, people who have been homeless for long lengths of time, um, you know, are more likely to, to experience those accelerated adverse health impacts of homelessness that uh, people are talking about. Um, and I'm including their behavioral health impacts as well as chronic disease and premature aging. Right, so the support service needs of these two, these groups, um, and even possibly the economic needs of these two groups, uh, are likely to uh, be be different. Uh, just I I feel very committed to trying to disaggregate uh, data wherever possible by race, um, and so just looking at the length of time homeless disaggregated by race and ethnicity, there aren't racial disparities that stand out in this data set. Um, so just wanted to allow some space for that and, and make sure that we're thinking about that whenever we're looking at data. Um, the focus groups really reinforce this idea that people experiencing homelessness have different needs and also different preferences. Um, what works for some doesn't work for others. Uh, so some people really liked shelter and even um, thrived in a very, uh, you know, they liked having a lot of restrictions. They liked restrictions. They liked the regulation of the environment. For some, that was really a benefit. Uh, others really did not like that um, and, and preferred being outside. Um, so recognizing and accepting the diversity of needs, I think, creates, opens up a real conversation about like, what are the different different program models that would work and be responsive to the needs of the population? And so I'm hoping that the committee will return to this and, and have a, you know, a conversation about what are the opportunities and challenges of developing a shelter, a shelter system that includes a variety of interventions? What are the possibilities and benefits of variation? And then what are the limitations and the risks as well? And I'm gonna move ahead. The full needs assessment includes a lot of really interesting and useful information about the healthcare system and um, programs that are designed for people experiencing homelessness, as well as you know, the rates at which people experiencing homelessness access services uh, that are not designed specifically for them, uh, which I found really interesting. Um, we're also seeing um, efforts to measure performance, which are promising and uh, exciting and coming uh, soon. Um, but I wanted to return to the qualitative data and just notice that one of the most powerful themes from the qualitative data analysis was the profound sense of isolation and alienation felt by people experiencing homelessness. Um, and these, the, this theme and these feelings, I think, really resonated with the strained and broken relationships that we talked about in the prevention section that was a cause of homelessness for many of the, um, the people that we spoke with. 
um, there was an overwhelming need not to be alone as they moved through their experience of homelessness, um, to be seen uh, and to be connected to others. Uh, many people expressed hopelessness about their situation in the future, really not seeing um, a clear path forward. Um, older adults in particular really struggled to navigate systems and to process their experience. Uh, the language here about feeling lost or the things that were, um, you know, things are up in the air. Um, and for me, those were particularly evocative of that like sense of disorientation and, and not being like grounded and oriented to a, to a time and place. Um, at the same time, you know, there was also a really a lot of frustration about how hard it is to get the right things, like to get to have their needs met. Um, you know, um, people talked a lot about being ineligible for programs, um, as well as participating in programs that then sort of fell short of like fully carrying them through to success. Um, and those those themes, I think, just going back to Member Friedenbach's earlier comment, uh, really connected with some of the feedback that Member Friedenbach and Member D'Antonio collected in the spring of, I guess it was this year, earlier this year during the budget set, um, season, right? So if you go back there, you can see a lot of that similar frustration um, and 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 um, I don't know. I want to say it's not exactly disappointment, but sort of uh, uh, loss and insufficiency, right? How hard people are having to work. Um, this bottom quote really um, sort of distills it for me. No one seems to care about us. And for me, that sums up both the feeling of abandonment and alienation, as well as the need not to be alone in this experience of homelessness. And I think that this finding, this this theme has implications for both the behavioral health or mental health interventions, as well as for shelter crisis hygiene interventions. And I would be very interested in, and I hope the committee will discuss um, sort of what does this pattern of isolation and the need for connection and support, what are the implications or what does that mean for the kinds of shelter programs and mental health service models uh, that are needed in the system? Okay, I'm gonna keep sort of moving, if that's okay. Are there, are there questions at this point? I wanna make sure you guys also have time to- discuss. I have two, oh, pardon Please, me. yeah, Chair. if folks just wanna unmute for questions. Thank you, this is Member Catalano. <clears throat> just two quick questions. Um, first on the length of time homeless, you know, acknowledging folks are not necessarily in shelter or unsheltered consistently over an episode of homelessness, but I'm wondering if we've looked at um, folks in that over a year, like how many of those are sheltered versus unsheltered, um, because I think we would hope to see, you know, faster exits from housing for both, but especially for folks that are sheltered and should theoretically have access to some of the services that would support them in exiting. So that's one point. And the second point was I would really love to um, talk more maybe in this conversation than also in future committee meetings about the mental health SF core metrics. I think the ones around housing and the last one about functioning and um, quality of life are really important and, and speak and are to me are much more informative than the units of service. 
which is really hard to, they're, you know, relevant, of course, but really hard to understand what is the, what, what's the, what are the results of those units of service. So I just wanted to um, thank you for incorporating those core metrics and then also would love to have more of a discussion about those and how, because of course we want to see folks um, in recovery and, you know, getting mm-hmm. uh, and, and in all senses, um, and also getting on the path to housing, um, not just receiving a service um, while they're right. Yeah, and greater sort of integration of these yeah. systems, right? Making sure that we're kind of all working together. Yeah, I know that um, Kelly and others at the at DPH are really um, ready. Like they want to come and talk about this, and it's just been a little bit challenging to. To schedule, but I'm hoping that sort of December or January we'll be able to get a presentation about those key performance indicators and sort of how they're thinking about them and, and the impact of them. Um, and then I will I can look into this question about exits, um, and that might also you know as we're talking like I'm thinking about like okay well what's um, you know maybe doesn't get into this particular document, but like we need to sort of establish our our, our data. Um, development agenda for the year, uh, right? So what are the questions and things that we need to know? So thank you for that. Was there any? Okay, I'm gonna press on if that's okay. Um, How much housing does the system need? This is another question that I can't or won't or right that we're not gonna answer here. but, you know, is important. And I just want to draw attention, right? Like housing resources are currently very tightly prioritized and that's because they are scarce, right? And so I think there's also like the question is like, what will it take to bring housing opportunities both in the system, but also outside the system to scale, um, right? Like how do we really scale up uh, permanent affordable, permanent housing that is affordable and as one of uh, the informants said, decent, right, that people want to live in. Like, how do we make more of that uh, so that we can, so that people can really end their, end their homelessness? Um, right now, um, this slide shows access to permanent housing resources. Um, it's, it's a dashboard um, that's publicly available uh, for coordinated entry. Um, and it's, showing us um, a few different a few different metrics, but the orange bar on the far right, that's the point in time count survey. Um, and then I wanna draw your attention to the light blue column, that's the leftmost one um, in each grouping of, of bars. And that represents the number of people who've been prioritized to receive a housing referral, referral in fiscal year 21-22, right? And so you can see, um, housing referral status, there are about 4,500, just short of 4,500 households, which, you know, is a conservative number because of that tight prioritization because of those scarce resources. Um, But it's still, it's still a pretty big number of people who have, um, you know, who have sort of the economic and health needs uh, to really uh, need that level of prioritization. Uh, and then we can also see the navy blue column, which is like the third from the left, right next to the orange column, that there are about 2,200 households uh, during fiscal year 22 who are housed in the system provide uh, in system provided housing, right? So bringing permanent housing exits to scale 
right? 2,200 um, is, you know, is a good number. And I, we really, I think everyone would like to see it grow, right? A bigger number. So bringing that, uh, those permanent housing access to scale is going to be essential and it's going to take new resources. And just also um, quickly, right? Everything here is disaggregated by race and ethnicity and we're not seeing significant, right? There's slight variation, keeping in mind the, the way the different N sizes of the data sets, um, not seeing a lot. Okay. Can I, can I jump in with a question here? Please, about that. Okay, or Keep just an observation more than a question. Mm -hmm. If you look to black African-American, uh, the third set of numbers there, Mm -hmm. We do see at the point in time showing 38% and the referrals 44 and, you know, is that 6% difference. But comparing that to other ethnic groups, I think on face it appears to represent some emphasis on uh, attempts at uh, racial equity or mm -hmm. addressing that in some way. And doesn't have to be here, but I think at some point it may be of interest to hear from the department how, because we know the complications of prioritizing race, how we have that 6% increase there as compared to others. I see it as a very good thing. I wish perhaps it was more than 6%, but how was that achieved? What methods are used to get there? And so I raise that as a question maybe for the future, unless there's a quick answer to that at this point. No, I don't think there's a quick answer to it, and it is an, is an interesting phenomenon. I guess I do want to draw attention. Um, I should have put a line here because these data and the ethnicity and race are collected separately. Um, but, you know, we do see, like, this is kind of a challenging picture over here for Hispanic Latinx where they're, um, they were counted at a much higher rate than in the past mm -hmm. at this last point in time count. And, you know, is that because we're counting better or we're collecting data better or because the size of the population has increased or a combination of all those things. Um, but we are seeing, right, like a really an inc a need to like connect with that community, which I think is something that this committee has talked about. Um, so just to sort of uh, rephrase what I said, right, we're within sort of housing referral referred to housing housed, there's not a lot of variation. Um, but there is, right, compared to the point in time count, which is meant to provide that mm -hmm. sort of comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just one thing, Jesse, oh. is yep. uh, on that on that point. Um, I think it's helpful to compare it to the point in time count on like kind of just like race and stuff. But the blue bars are all over the course of a year. And then the point in time count is just one moment. Yep. And so it would be helpful to have another bar in there. Maybe um, it would be like really dark midnight blue or something that would um, that would uh, compare to the people who basically went through coordinated entry and got got the shaft and basically are told that they're not. Oh, like everyone who enrolled. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I also would want to see, you know, like, for example, um, when when that um, survey was done by Latino task force in the mission district. There was a really low percentage of enrollment in coordinated entry. Mm -hmm. um, there's some stuff there that I think that um, that would be important, and also the raw numbers are really important of how many people are trying to get housing and then um, are it's not going anywhere for them, which is really yes. frustrating for folks, obviously. Absolutely, and that's right, and that's 
that's the dynamic that I'm trying. I don't know if I'm successfully sort of capturing it, but that tight prioritization where they're just really, there just isn't enough, right? And people are like, yeah, it's creating like a very, um, yeah, it's it's just it's it's just wrenching to to see and to hear and to um, because every person's situation is um, is is terrible, right? Everyone, right? Everyone deserves housing. Um, so it's it's a it's a tough situation to be in a place where we have to where our permanent housing resources are so scarce that we're having to like be so um, tight around the prioritization. Um, and I want to make sure I'm going to press on again so that we can, you know, be sure to get to the point where you guys talk to each other and it's not Q and A. Um, I do, let's see. So how many households need permanent housing, right? The question depends on who permanent supportive housing is for, right? So how much of the population matches that definition? And I've outlined here, right, of extremely low incomes, with one or more disabling health conditions. Um, there's a very specific uh, definition uh, that I can provide to you if you're, if you're interested, and then extended lengths of time homeless. And so here are a few of the data points from the earlier portion of the needs assessment to kind of help you think like, well, what, what proportion of the population really matches and really needs permanent supportive housing? Um, and that is because there are a lot of people who do, just like I think Member Friedenbach was sort of saying, right? There are a lot of people who participated in the qualitative research who needed PSH because of health conditions and economic barriers. They're on fixed incomes, they're aging and have um, chronic disease, uh, things like that, uh, behavioral health um, disorders. Um, you know, and a lot of those folks were either waiting for their name to come up on the list, but you know, back to the situation that member Friedenbach mentioned, waiting to be able to get on the list, right? Um, and, and that was particularly um, sad and frustrating to, to hear. Um, there were also, you know, an, an, a lot of people who just didn't seem to be a good fit for PSH um, or weren't a good fit for PSH anymore, right? And so some of the, we spoke to young people living in PSH who really, it had played an important role in their life in sort of stabilizing and independence and, um, you know, a lot of things like that. And now um, it wasn't a good fit anymore, right? They needed more independence, uh, more freedom, more autonomy, uh, uh, things like that, right? But still needed the deep subsidy, I think, uh, was clear to me. Um, and then there were some people like this last person who said, you know, there aren't programs for people who just need a temporary boost. And so that, that language of temporary boost uh, really stuck with me that there are people there. It's just not a good fit. They don't need the intensive services and they don't need the long-term um, deep subsidy, which I think understandably, right? That brings us to rapid rehousing and uh, time-limited supports. How much, again, of the population may succeed with time-limited economic and social supports? Well, you know, like what proportion could increase their income to be able to take on the rent? What other alternate sort of living or housing situations, right? Uh, could people enter into um, to, you know, be independent, but also be able to um, 
check that economic box of being able to afford the rent in a decent place that they want to live. How long does it take, right? How long does a subsidy or social support connected with that need to need to last for people to be successful? Um, it was not uncommon at all to encounter people experiencing homelessness and working. We talked to a lot of people who were working. Um, and the reality is, is that, you know, housing that's affordable to households with extremely low incomes is scarce, like not just in the homeless system, but like in the city, right? It's hard, it's hard to find. And so we're going to need some, I think, some creative solutions to help households bridge the affordability gap. Um, and that applies to households across the OCO definitions, right? Whether it's doubled up, living in an SRO, or working and, and staying in shelter, right? We're going to, that affordability gap um, is real, and how do we bridge it? Uh, the the regional housing needs assessment and the housing element plans have been getting a lot of attention, both in cities and uh, at the state level. And I mention it here because the needs assessment, sort of my reading of it, is that um, San Francisco is short more than 21,000 housing units for very low income and below households. So they sort of group 50% of AMI and below altogether, and that's more than 21,000 units. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so that's a lot. Um, it somehow feels right. I don't know. I'd be interested if that feels ballparky um, to anybody. Um, but I just want to conclude this section by framing some of the population questions that are going to be important to modeling and that I hope the committee will discuss. So what proportion of the population needs PSH because they have high service needs and extremely low incomes that are unlikely to grow over time? What proportion of the population needs that temporary boost as they increase their income? And how long, how much of a boost, like both like how much of a resource and how long do people need? Um, and then what other creative solutions are out there? Um, Vice Chair D'Antonio brought up, and it stuck with me, the DC Flex program, which has been evaluated and shows success. Um, might that work, right? What's what's happening in other uh, jurisdictions, other communities that, that we could uh, try and build on? So I'm just going to quickly go to the conclusions so that you guys can have uh, time, to, time to talk. So in sum, Homelessness is the result of economic inequality across all four categories of homelessness, right? Literal homelessness, imminent risk of homelessness, homelessness under other statutes, which, you know, is um, people living in doubled up and overcrowded situations, SRO families, um, and then people who are fleeing or attempting to flee domestic violence. Uh, people experiencing homelessness have diverse needs for crisis interventions, shelter, and housing. And an effective response to homelessness will be modeled on the population's needs. It may include approaches that aren't currently part of the citywide response. There's going to be a, a spectrum, right, a variety of, of solutions that are that we are going to need to be able to make progress on this issue. Um, from social safety net to permanent housing, resources are not available at the scale the crisis demands. Yeah. We know in many cases, we know things that work for different populations and resources are not available at the scale that the crisis demands, which is why they're so highly prioritized uh, and tightly restrictively prioritized, right? Um, lots of room 
uh, to grow there. Um, and adding investments with the twin goals of meeting diverse needs and increasing flow through the homeless response system is going to ma maximize capacity and effectiveness. Um, just want to, again, say that the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing's system modeling and citywide strategic planning process, this is one opportunity to really better quantify the additional resources that are needed and to better align systems of care to meet the needs of people experiencing homelessness. Um, and then effectively responding to all four categories of homelessness is going to require significant new investment and coordinated effort, um, not just across city departments, but including across city departments uh, to really strengthen that social safety net to foster economic mobility for people living in poverty and to realize uh, housing stability. So thank you. I think with the questions, I was just about on time. I want to give you a round of applause, Jesse. This is a phenomenal presentation and uh, lots of hard work. I know um, by many folks and definitely want to shout out our data officer as well, um, Julie Ledbetter. Thank you for your support in this process as well. Um, so we are going to open it up and actually um, Jesse is going to support with facilitation so I can actually engage in the discussion as well. So um, I know we have some framing questions that we wanted to yeah. share. First to me, I think I'm going to switch. I do have some discussion questions. Let me um, work on getting that up while you, um, the first one maybe as a starting place is what stood out uh, to you most in the needs assessment analysis and what's important, like what's important there and what does it add to our understanding of need among homeless people experiencing homelessness? So really a chance to kind of have a pre-critical moment of, of thinking. I'll put myself on stack because I typically have to share, so I'm going to go for it. Um, I mean, I know I've brought this issue up pretty much all the time in terms of what we're dealing with, with the, racial, the structural racism um, piece of the problem that we're, we're facing. And um, I know I mentioned this to Jesse, but I know there's a lot of efforts that are happening in the city. I mean, we have the Reparations Task Force, we have the Office of Racial Equity um, with the Human Rights Commission and other you know, efforts that are happening in our public sector, but also in the private sector around this issue. And so I just really want to highlight the piece around the city departmental coordination, because I feel like for me, that is what always comes forward for me, is that if we're really looking at um, addressing this, this massive historical structural problem that Black and brown folks are most impacted, I think it's going to really take that tight coordinated effort. And I know some of that's been happening with the data work group and, and other areas, but just want to put that out to all of you as my colleagues, like, you know, it is heartbreaking to see that when, and I'm in all these different spaces, whether it be health, education in our city, and then in this space. And, you know, we're all, as black folks, we're always bearing the burden of these issues. And it's just, how many times can you hear that um, everywhere you go and not feel enraged and frustrated and, to also, um, you know, not trying to hate on anyone, but I mean, we do have, you know, numerous leaders of, of color, black leaders in our city, our mayor, you know, is a black woman. I know she is deeply touched by these issues. So just really want to think from a political standpoint, as well as like a logistical standpoint, like how do we move the needle on this? And um, would love to hear from the reparations task force on the work that they're doing. If they could come and present to our body, I, I know they're doing good work. I just don't know where they're at with their process. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, this is just, it continues to be every space that I'm in and whether it's health equity, you know, educational equity, homeless, you know, homelessness is all the burden is bared by black folks. So just wanted to say that I'm tired of it. <laughs> I'm frustrated. Yeah. Um, I, go ahead. I was going to say, I can now see the participant list if people want to raise their hands, but we can also just have more of a discussion so or a conversation. Yeah, I just want to um, second what um, Chair Williams said around that really stands out, um, the racial disparities on all these different levels. And um, I really like the idea of overcompensating for that. And so I don't think we can catch up when it's such a disparate impact unless we make sure that there's a larger, you know, not matching, but a larger proportion of of folks that are, um, sorry, I've also got a cold, me and Nina, I guess are on the same <laughs> thing here. Um, but I think we need to over overcompensate. Like we need to have, you know, 43% of our population is African-American. We need to have 50% getting, you know, or whatever those numbers are. But um, but because it's a, it's a, we got to flip the, it's also, I just want to say, like, a lot of this stuff is so, um, one of the reasons for that is, is that there's so much intergenerational um, homelessness and severe poverty that just continues um, with, uh, where folks' kids and, um, you know, they end up homeless and stuff like that. And I just, I've seen it so much. I mean, one of our, one of our members who was, um, who led the protest we had last night at Stolen Belongings, um, um, you know, she had her daughter with her at the protest and her granddaughter and her daughter and granddaughter are homeless and um, and she's finally in housing. But it's just seeing her her daughter, who I've known since she was a kid, um, you know, struggle now as a mom and going through this stuff. It's it's really I mean, we've got to. Yeah. And, and I, I am really hopeful and I think I think we can make really great strides and turn this around. I think it's an absolutely solvable issue. Um, and I'm excited to be a part of this. Um, the one, one other thing I was going to say on the questions on the end um, is that the kind of te temporary subsidies and who's appropriate for that. I think that's an um, important question, um, but I think there's another piece of it that is there's a lot of people who may not need support services, but are going to need ongoing rental subsidy. And so there's a way to save resources as people move away from support services, they have the economic homelessness, but the rents are so high. And I noticed just with like, even folks who are earning, you know, over 50K a year, um, you know, still being homeless. It's just, it's, you know, folks can be totally stabilized and then still, um, it's just, there's such a huge disparity between rents and income um, that even if people are able to like, stabilize, get good jobs, you know, uh, maybe get trained in a particular field and all that kind of stuff. They're still not up at the, you know, 100 plus K or whatever kind of kind of salary. And it's um, and they're they're still struggling. So I think there's there's a piece of that, um, uh, you know, extremely low income um, that public housing has traditionally played a role in and that we really haven't had much access to because of the rebuilds for years and years and years. And so I also want to kind of point out that hole that we still face, um, that um, we, uh, you know, our seniors and, and families with kids, you know, that was a big um, piece of the um, puzzle traditionally. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that some point, I mean, the rebuilds are super important and I support them 
at some point when when all those are done and we're able to start filling units, we still have a lot of vacancies um, and a lot of folks squatting those vacancies. You know, I mean, there's just like there's a lot of vacancies out there. So we can make sure that um, unhoused folks get access to those as they open up. Oh, yeah. And that we include that in our in our analysis and how we're going to get out of this awful situation that we're in. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not seeing hands, so I'm going to trust that people, that you guys are going to jump in. I raised my hand. <laughs> oh, okay. So I have a problem then. Let me <laughs> go ahead. No worries. I'm enjoying being able to be part of the discussion. <laughs> but um, uh, to your point, um, what you mentioned, um, Member Friedenbach, around the economic mobility piece, um, like I feel like how do we bring some of those other factors into this conversation? I'm also on the workforce investment San Francisco board and, you know, good union jobs, you know, don't necessarily take someone going through university, you know, whatever. And I mean, electricians make like very livable, beyond livable wages. And a lot of these, um, these trade positions, very high livable wage. And so I think that piece of the conversation is, is very important for me. And, um, you know, member Catalano, I know you're in the prevention space and thinking about workforce and a lot of that too. Um, so just thinking about how do we connect folks with opportunities, but then again, with the structural racism piece, I mean, you hear stories of folks who try to get into these opportunities and there's some disconnects there um, in terms of service provision providers, maybe their own bias and, and what they, how they're interacting um, in particular with this population. And so we'd love to kind of bring in the workforce element and can we partner with labor to see, you know, are there those opportunities and connecting folks? with some of those opportunities. Because yeah, you get someone in a permanent housing solution, but then if they don't have the income to maintain that, then again, it's that cycle, that vicious cycle. So we'd love to talk more about that as well. Thank you, Chair Williams. I am, now I see that it's just these like tiny, tiny little hands. So, <laughs> um, that's the last one that I see on that. I do want to just make sure that, you know, we have a number of members who um, are a little just, um, you know, quiet and absorbing and just want to make sure that everybody has a chance to, to talk about what stood out to them. Okay. Let's, um, Look. Let me jump in. Oh, please. Uh, so uh, I think uh, the thing that stands out to me, I think we've talked the character, I think we're well wrapped around the characteristics of people experiencing homelessness. And I think having the detail and the qualitative remarks, I, I think putting it down in writing like uh, you've done and it is really, really important, but I think it represents putting to paper what we have understood as a community and what we have understood as a uh, committee as well. Uh, and I think what we haven't gotten to is what you have recognized at a couple places in the report is, and, and this directly was, uh, relates to our responsibility, what's the right amount of shelter? So we have X dollars that we can put into shelter. What's the right amount of housing? 
And it seems to me we're so undersubscribed in terms of what we need that we can keep developing permanent housing with our funds for the next three or four cycles easily and is still needed. But I think somewhere we've got to get to that number of what's the right, is the right amount to have 10,000 units of supportive housing? Is it to have 15? Is it to have 20? You know, is it an endless amount? And I think we've got to get to that. And so what I am recognizing is, I think it's right at the very end of your report that the, the citywide strategic or the department's strategic planning and the modeling should get us to that number. I, let me just say, I hope that is the case because I think we've talked of the need for that. And I don't, I, I don't see, I have no idea how to do it. And so I'm hoping that process gets us to some number that we can latch onto. So that if we say what we need right now is 6,000 additional units of housing, we can measure what Prop C has contributed to that uh, effort. Likewise, for uh, prevention activities, you know, is our, what is it, 1,400 flex spending? I don't even remember the number right now. 1,300, is that the right amount or do we need double that amount? We've got to have something that puts that to numbers so that we can measure our progress <clears throat> toward it. And I'd say the same thing in terms of the racial equity part. I think we recognize the challenge that's there in our particular niche uh, which relates to all the other things that have been talked about is housing. And so when we see that, I think it's 38% of the people experiencing homelessness in the point of town, time are black, we see 30% of people experiencing homelessness are Latino, or Latinx. You, you know, what are we doing to ensure, is there anything we can do? Or can we only say, here are the units and somebody else figure out how to make sure that the folks getting into them are the right numbers? And that's where I said earlier in today's meeting, I think uh, having a conversation with the department on what they are doing to have what looks to me like a small measure of success in that regard uh, with the black community, it looks like not so much with the Latino community yet, but to talk about how do you operationalize the entry to housing so that folks who traditionally have been so underserved can get a leg up with that. So those are two takeaways that I have. One is let's get to those numbers. And if we can't do it as a committee, let's lean and participate heavily uh, through yourself, Jesse, or yourself, uh, Julie, uh, or whoever the person is that's at the table in that strategic plan to make sure that what comes out is something that is quantitative and we can say this is what our goal is. This is what we're trying to uh, develop. Thanks, Member Reggio. I just want to say, yay, Ken, <laughs> for saying that. Um, and I, I think I've raised it a couple times at the last couple meetings, and I. Maybe there's some follow-up steps that we can do as a committee to really sit back down with the strategic planning folks. I have not been involved in those conversations. I've been briefed, I've been updated, but I'm not involved. So, you know, I think we've we've said this several times around the difference between participa participation and briefing or being uh, told things. Um, so I, I just think 
it's really critical that we get to those numbers and I'm not seeing it so far in how the modeling is set up and, and I've asked and I'm excited to hear more, but I think, um, and it's an emerging process, but I just, I would really love to see all of this great needs assessment segmentation work result in an understanding of future need not so much an analysis of our existing system, but really deep understanding of future need. And it's and it's still a complex activity. It's not easy, right? But, you know, if we want to know how much we need for older adults and how that impacts, you know, what's available 10 years from now for other populations, those are the types of things that, that I think with the needs assessment, with the strategic planning can really provide us. And I'd just love to hear from the committee how we can maybe be better participants in that process or from the departments and you know just just some ideas there but thank you Ken for raising that thanks for that better and just a reminder that tomorrow there's going to be that sort of this morning piece of time is going to be dedicated to that um, and so there is a method to the, us having this conversation today um, so that where people can feel prepared, like they know what they want to say. Um, I'll just hop in. Um, I think there's like a, a lot swirling in my head right now, starting with what Chair Williams said about the sort of repeating patterns that cause and like repetition of exclusion that cause all of these systems and like experiences to to always. Um, harm black and brown people the most. And so I'm just thinking about the ways in which like the challenges in our system from kind of the, the types of safety net supports that would keep folks housed to the types of um, opportunities that would allow people to get out of, you know, housing instability, like those, the flow and the kind of like continuity of supports really matter um across all of our you know even the private sector too right not just like our public sector institutions and so i think i'm just to verbalize what's happening in my head right now like thinking about the ways in which we like take um you know kind of um responsibility for what's in our purview which is you know when you kind of outlined this at the beginning and sort of focusing on inflow like downstream inflow exits into housing and returns to homelessness while also being really mindful about the work that we can do with other parts of the city to make sure that it's not just, you know, a boost for a year with a housing subsidy, but an actual path uh, like to prosperity. Um, and so that's what I'm sitting in right now, trying to think about ways in which we can like really focus in on getting those numbers of, you know, exits to permanent housing disproportionately serving um, communities of color to to do to kind of try to address some of the historical inequities while also making sure that they're like there's more there it's not just uh you know a kind of a one-time permanent housing solution that's supposed to be sticky but also something that can bear fruit like intergenerationally um i think that's an opportunity that we have in san francisco with the resources that we have so that's what i'm saying about. Um, I don't know if I, I remember Catalano made me think of um, something else too. And then to um, uh, remember Reggio's point as well in terms of like the quantitative piece and increasing stock 
available stock, but then also just the barriers when we do have the available stock, like the fact that we have this <laughs> absorbent amount of vacancies in San Francisco, and then looking at the housing element, this challenge that we're going to have to build with 82,000 additional you know, units, and then the barriers, as we know, I'm looking at Ken and, and Jenny in terms of like acquiring properties, but also just building in San Francisco, and then you know, perfect storm of potential recession, depression, and cost of, of building. Um, I mean, it's a lot to kind of piece it all together, but um, yeah, I just think what you said, Member Catalano, really just resonated with me that it's not just for me, this availability of stock and having the numbers, but really these system barriers that even when we have the resources available, which we've heard from listening sessions, from working with folks in, in community, that there's something that happens that black and brown folks are get, are disconnected, even with those um, resources being set up in our minds the best way possible. There's still those elements, which I know it's a, it's a touchy issue and a, also a political one of how the, the departments are working together, um, you know, sort of this um, looking at it all across the system, which I know we'll talk about more tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I think there's just some really, some even deeper, hard conversations to be had. And that's why I keep thinking about the work of the Human Rights Commission, the Dreamkeeper Initiative, and the Reparations Task Force, because they're sort of tasked with looking at all that and really, you know, sort of leading on those those hard um, conversations. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just respect all the the brain trust that's here and folks that have worked in community for a long time and have been pushing back on, you know, for a long time on these really challenging issues and just how do we continue in this space to be part of that that conversation to keep pushing folks, and when, even when it's uncomfortable, um, because there's a lot of questions I still have around, you know, the service provision aspects. Um, okay, so I, I had a question about structural racism, and it feels like we've made some some ground on that. Um, I think we were, and we've started talking a little bit about like what are the greatest opportunities and the greatest challenges that are facing San Francisco's response to homelessness. Um, so I'd be interested to hear from people. Again, look for these tiny little hands. I see Member Friedenbach. I think Ken put a manual hand up too. I don't know if you want to go first, Ken, but. Sorry, I didn't see it. Okay, it's all good. Um, it was a shy hand. It was a. Um, <laughs> um, I think we, uh, Chanel named a lot of the, a lot of the challenges around the rising construction costs and, you know, it's, there's, there's issues there. Um, I do think we got really like this whole acquisition thing we got really lucky with, and I think we could do a lot more there. And I'd love that because it's like, it, especially when it's, when it's acquiring non uh, resident, like, you know, non currently residential, like buildings that are not occupied by poor people already. Um, but but that actually expand the stock. Um, and I think one of the other things that is really a um, barrier 
is um, we have a um, a buildup of really deep amounts of misinformation in the San Francisco voting population. And that continues to be exasperated with, you know, a lot of misinformation about how much money is being spent and um, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of um, feelings that there's no way to, to solve it. And so in that kind of context, it's harder to create political will um, and get the things done that need to get done. Um, and it sets us back and it basically leads to whenever you have more frustration, you have increased distrust in institutions and then you have more hatred against that. That pivot happens very quickly where people turn on homeless people themselves. And so um, we're seeing, I, you know, and so that's related to the political response of homelessness. And I think that's another real problem in our system is just the way that resources are accessed and how everything is complaint driven. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm just speaking as the shelter liaison, um, I am beyond frustrated that every health provider in the city that serves homeless people is seeing people that are like, you know, close to death who are trying to get shelter, that want to get shelter, and there's no way into shelter because all of the shelter beds are given out during sweeps. And so, um, and that they have not put back up the self-referral to shelter. Um, I think another huge issue is, is that, you know, when we talk about diversity of our system, I 100% agree with that. And I think that's like really important for us to have a diverse system. Very rarely ever are people given multiple choices about what they would want. They get, you know, if they're lucky enough to get some, they're lucky enough to be standing in a gentrifying neighborhood where someone's calling and complaining, and then they end up having this massive city response with like 18 highly paid city personnel coming out. Um, standing around for hours on end um, and they get one offer of one thing and um, and then it's a take it or leave it type situation. There's no no consideration about what the individual needs are or anything like that. So I think, you know, the way that we're the way that we're like putting people in services and stuff is really, um, really also creating a lot more distrust of institution and a lot more um, frustration. And there's some, some of the pieces are changing around coordinated entry, and I think there'll be some promise there, but that creates a lot of distrust among homeless people. Um, and so um, in the way that it's rolled out. And so I think there's, there's, there's like that broader population, um, kind of like the voter stuff that um, that's a barrier. And then there's the, um, and then there's also like these really um, problematic ways that we've made things overly complicated for folks um, in order to be able to get or impossible for folks to be able to get their needs met, even when there's maybe some some resources available. So th those are some of the things that come to mind for me. Yeah. Thank you. I think the uh, uh, our role in the committee is to identify barriers and that's a, uh, in, among other things that we're legislation causes to do and obviously one of the barriers uh, or a, a major barrier to providing what we need in terms of housing is the cost of a unit of housing and the length of time it takes to develop and i don't know the current numbers on that but i, I know a year ago we were talking roughly six hundred thousand per unit seven hundred thousand per unit sometime if you're building new uh six years seven years 
And, you know, so identifying those barriers, what are the things that cause it to cost so much? What are the regulations that have been imposed with good reason along the way by our community uh, that uh, affordable housing developers have to meet that both increases the cost and increases the time? Is there a way to waive some of those regulations? Is there a way to find a way at one time modular housing? And I think that's debatable right now as to whether that's a better way to go. But modular housing was possibly a cost efficiency that uh, the city should look to more. And there are challenges and difficulties with that, too. But is our should our committee in some way look at trying to find a way to expedite working with i don't think we have the i don't i'm not sure it's our role politically to figure out how to do that but as part of what we want to do to encourage the board to encourage the mayor to find ways to say for the sake of affordable housing supportive housing that there have to be waivers on some things there have got to be ways to expedite and to move this stuff forward uh, and I don't know the answer on that. We've had sort of behind the scenes, not behind the scenes, but not at this table, uh, but, you know, uh, community conversations sometimes with the affordable housing developers or uh, uh, funders that is there a way to do it. And I, I'm just not aware that, anybody, aware that anybody has found that solution yet. But I guess I'd like to put it on the table that we've been talking for a year on this. Uh, and uh, we haven't, the committee, I've been talking and other members of our group have been talking. Should we somehow find a way as a committee to say, to go on record saying we've got to find a way to expedite? And then that leads to the question, well, how in the world would it be expedited? And I don't know who has the knowledge base or the political will to do that. But it's something we haven't really grappled with. And I think we should. We've got to get to where supportive housing can be developed in a more timely way, particularly new housing and uh, family housing, as an example, and, uh, and at less cost than what it is right now. Okay, I see Chair Williams, and then I fear we're going to need to shift to talking about sort of the drafting process. This is not the last time or the only time, right? Um, we're going to pull together, there are going to be more opportunities to pull together some ideas. Uh, so let's hear from Chair Williams, uh, and then I can talk a little bit about, about that, and we can do public comment. Yeah, thank you so much, Jesse. And yeah, just to add on to what Member Reggio said, I think it'd be great for us to go on record um, saying that. And I'm just thinking about what role does the state kind of play in uh, what's happening <laughs> with San Francisco? Um, because it's just, it's it just feels like this intractable problem that we just can't, yeah, I just want to just second what Member Reggio said that, you know, we have to figure out how to build and how to expand, you know, what's available. And there's just, again, all these barriers from the cost of construction, but then also um, just some of these other political um, factors that, you know, um, people are waiting. They need the support, they need housing and they need the resource. And, you know, politics, in my opinion, shouldn't be getting in the way of, you know, getting people off, off the streets. So, um, and into a real permanent solutions. So I definitely want to second what Member Reggio said as putting that on record as part of the, the letter to the mayor and to the Board of Supervisors. 
Thank you, Chair Williams. Um, I want to um, suggest a process that's a slight adjustment of what we had talked about previously uh, for sort of getting. Uh, so the what we had talked about previously was putting together a letter connected to this conversation um, that synthesizes and, and lifts up some of the most important priority areas for the committee. Um, it gives the committee a chance to lift those up for the board and the mayor. Um, I think it was clear when I was working with Chair Williams and Data Officer Ledbetter that this conversation is maybe better a starting place for that, right? And not to put so much pressure to do it all during this conversation, but to sort of uh, create a forum for, for members to talk and then uh, continue, right? percolating and marinating and crockpotting on this idea over the next several days. And so uh, what the proposal um, is that, uh, that's slightly adjusted, is that the committee begins the discussion of priorities and learnings today to inform that letter, and that we identify as many as four members, it doesn't need to be that many, to work with me on drafting the letter. Um, that committee members can then email priorities and suggestions and, and thoughts, ideas to me um, on or before, like by the Wednesday after the Thanksgiving holiday to give people a chance to, to really um, think about it and, 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 and develop their ideas. Um, and then that designated drafting subgroup can, can meet and, and draft a letter that gets provided back to the committee um, no later than December 12th. And then the committee can sort of do finalized revisions and vote at the December 15th uh, strat uh, meeting. And so it's, it's a very similar timeline, except there's more committee involvement and a longer period of, um, and a longer period of opportunity for members to kind of weigh in and offer suggestions and ideas. So I, I'm really happy, I'm pretty happy with it. I'm open to, fine-tuning of it um, and and also hope there are volunteers who want to help uh, draft that letter. Anyone want to volunteer? I, I'm definitely going to support Jesse, but you already know that. <laughs> and, and I would volunteer as well. Yeah, me too. Super. Great, and so that leaves, there's still one more person could participate, um, but I feel like with three uh, participants, that gives us a pretty stable base to, to come up with a letter. Um, so I, I, will, um, I will reach out to all of you, right, with, again, writing up the process and the timeline and, and things like that so nobody misses deadlines or, or anything um, and get some meetings scheduled for drafting that letter um, that's going to come back to the committee and, and um, you know, you'll have final, final say-so on, on sending that out. Um, so this conversation seemed really productive. So look for, looking forward to continuing it, uh, both in comments, but also tomorrow in particular. And I think we have a chance then we can move to public comments. Um, Secretary Hom, oh, there you are. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 
1309, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. I'm checking the attendee list now for any hand raised for public comment, and I do not see any for this agenda item. Thank you so much, um, Secretary Hom and Jesse. Thank you so much for your presentation. And thank you all colleagues for your really thoughtful engagement in our discussion. So we now will be moving um, to our next item, which is uh, reviewing our revenue, uh, the, the fund revenue forecast. And I believe we have Carol Liu and Yuri Hardin are here from the controller's office. So welcome. Thanks. Um, thanks so much for having us. Um, let me just try to share my screen. Okay, can everyone see that? Okay, I'm going to assume. Yes. yes, it shows slide seven. Okay, all right, there, there we go. go. There we go. All right, um, so thanks everyone for um, the opportunity to discuss revenue. Um, my name is Carol Liu, I'm Citywide Revenue Manager in the Controller's Budget and Analysis Division. Um, and I'm joined by Yuri Hardin, um, Assistant Citywide Revenue Manager. Oh, I'm just going to move this. Okay. Um, so we're here to talk about um, the, our latest um, Fall 22 forecast for homeless gross receipts tax. Um, just as by way of overview, um, San Francisco's business taxes um, are quite volatile with, uh, and budgets are based on the forecasts at a particular moment in time. And we update these projections throughout the year to help policymakers um, manage budgets to uh, rapidly changing reality on the ground. Um, right now we're projecting business tax weakness versus the budget in both the current as well as the future fiscal years. Our November forecast um, right now projects about 30 to $50 million in annual losses um, in these years from the prior projection. And this is a revision. I think last time um, we spoke to this body, this is a there was a similar revision and this revision is on top of that revision, which was of a similar magnitude. Um, and I'll share the numbers um, in a bit. Um, there's still significant downside to this forecast. Um, while we're assuming slow and no growth in our underlying tax base, it's not a recession scenario. So it could, um, depending on what happens in the months and year or so to come, it, we will find out whether we need to revise down or not. Um, but we know given where we think we are now, um, current and future year plans will need to be revised. And um, we will have another forecast in both February and March of 23 in time for the annual budget cycle. Um, so this slide um, I've presented um, before to this committee, um, but it's just to reorient everyone to the source that feeds the OCOH fund. Um, so there's nothing new here. Um, as everyone probably recalls, the November 2018 Proposition C imposed a gross receipts tax in next, uh, on um, gross receipts in excess of 50 million uh, in addition to the existing gross receipts tax. So if a business earned 50 million plus $100, then the 
this tax applies to that $100. Um, the next bit is just the rate table, um, which varies by industry. And then as a reminder, this data is a little bit is from 2020 tax year, but the payers of the homelessness gross receipts tax are the largest payers of the existing, the, of the general funds gross receipts tax. So in tax year 2020, there were about 300 payers versus about 10,000 payers for the general funds um, gross receipts tax. So basically, I think the shorthand, the treasurer, I've heard the treasurer tax collector say is, if a business has its name on the side of a building, it might be a business that would pay this tax. <clears throat> um, so just a review, I think um, maybe this was discussed in the prior um, meeting, but 21-22 revenue came in worse than what we had discussed, uh, forecasted before in the spring. Um, and so tax revenues are forecasted on a quarterly basis or quarterly plus a little bit more often than that. And we report them in our various publications. So just to take you through 21-22, um, this forecast worsened over time. So in spring 21, uh, a year and a half ago, we forecasted um, homeless gross receipts for 21-22 to be $335.6 million. And that was what was ended, that was what was budgeted. Um, then in the fall of 21, we issued our five-year financial plan and we lowered our expectations to 296.2 million. In February 22, just a few months after that, we wrote the six-month report and just based on all the factors we saw, we thought, okay, maybe we'll get a little bit more. So we bumped up our forecast to 303.7 million. Um, that you know remains remain kind of steady. The next forecast we thought 294, okay, a little worse. But where we actually ended up um, in um, our audited financial statement at year end in August 22 was 278.6 million. So um, worse than our forecast and worse than budget. Um, and the reason why actuals was lower than budget is primarily because of the persistence. Um, of high levels of telecommuting and work from home that was not anticipated at the time of budget development. As well, um, in spring 21, we didn't know or think about, we didn't know about all of these uh, Greek alphabet letters, the Delta and Omicron waves hadn't happened yet and hadn't been anticipated. And that really pushed businesses return to office dates from fall 21. Everyone talked about coming back around Labor Day but many businesses push back, you know, towards Thanksgiving and again towards after the new year. Um, and so that was none of that was really anticipated in 21. Um, and all of that is part of why um, our business taxes didn't end up as high as we thought we did. Um, and it kind of speaks to why there's so much volatility um, in this source, because it has very much to do with um, how people, how office workers in particular will um, will work in the future and what we will do with all these office buildings. Um, and and those, those questions are not yet settled. So just looking forward, um, fiscal year 22-23 through 27-28, we're, we're currently working on our five-year financial plan forecast, um, which should come out in January 23. Um, so th this, these numbers aren't really fresh off the Excel document. Um, I think they were pasted in yesterday. Um, 
So this is our, our latest forecast. Um, so just to orient you to this um, table, so the rows are the years. Um, the first column is what our prior, what the budget and prior forecast was. So we do two-year budgeting. There's two green numbers. And then even though we budget for two years, we do um, make a forecast for out years. So this is what our best thinking was um, as of the spring. And that's what was baked into the budget, spring 22. Um, now that some time has elapsed, this is our latest thinking, um, these set of numbers. And in red, this is the difference between these two sets. So this is what I'm referring to when I say um, we're revising our forecast between 30 to about $50 million. Um, and this really has to do with um, how we forecast this is it's based on, you know, our prior year performance, we were lower than expected. We can see our cash receipts to date are lower than we think it should be. So it, those two things together kind of show us like, okay, we should probably revise our forecast downward. And then the overall economic outlook between the spring 22 and um, fall 22 has worsened. In inflation continues to persist at really high levels um, and interest rates are continuing to ratchet up. Um, all uh, work from home is persistently high, all of these things. Um, and then recently the, the news about all of the layoffs. Um, and so uh, homelessness gross receipts, it, layoffs in the tech sector. So um, homelessness gross receipts is forecasted to be lower um, than previously thought. And just to share some key assumptions in this forecast. Um, so before we, we had anticipated persistent telecommuting um, more at the 33% level, a 33% decrease of gross receipts attributable to San Francisco related to telecommuting. Um, but now we're based on how we ended the year and how, what we can see from the tax filings where we are um, raising that to 40%, a net effect of 40% um, persist, uh, throughout all the plan years. In addition, um, in tax year 23 and 24, we're assuming slow or no growth of our tax base. Um, um, and then and then the out years, 20 tax year 24 and beyond, we are assuming that we get back to about 3% growth um, in the future years. Um, so it's not it's not a it's not the worst case scenario by far. We're not saying negative growth, we're just saying the tax base slows down. Um, in terms of next steps, so this is sort of, oh, this was our best thinking, this is our best thinking right now, which we will publish in a couple of months, if not earlier. Um, we're going to take another bite at the apple, I guess, um, many times. Um, so in, uh, we're going to publish in January 23. Then um, we're going to turn around immediately um, and do another sprint for our six-month budget update, um, and that will focus on the current year. Then in March 23, we're going to look again at the full five years in this um, five-year financial plan update. Um, and at this time, it was at this time, I believe, we spoke to the committee about our forecast, um, and so maybe we would do the same um, this, this cycle. Um, and then just so you guys know, we do um, we do have another forecast that comes out called the nine month budget update in May 
um, and that's another current year report. So it kind of toggles between current year and many years and current year and many years. Um, so in closing, um, similar to 21-22 departments, um, will need to reduce their expenditure budgets to equal the forecasted revenue amounts in 22-23. So it'll be a similar exercise to last year. Um, but um, I guess what's new here is that, um, you know, our forecast is like persistently negative. And so spending plans in the upcoming budget years will have to be re revisited again. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the timeline will be updating our forecasts multiple times with more recent info. Um, and I just wanted to kind of, I don't want to, it's, yeah, to leave with a gloomy note, but that there, there is significant downside risk to the forecast. Um, we try to take a balanced approach and we're being consistent in our forecast with how we're treating the general funds gross receipts. Um, but, um, if you read the newspapers every day, there's there's more news coming out um, of of what's happening, and so um, as as we get like real data on that, we will reflect it. Um, real data versus like anecdotes, then we'll try to reflect it in the forecast. Um, so that's all I had. I think maybe DPH and HSH. Yes. Need to follow. Yes. So we'll have Gigi Whitley and Jenny Louie come up at this time. Thank you so much, Carol. Hi, um, can you hear me okay? Afternoon or good morning um, to the chair, Jenny Louie, uh, Chief Financial Officer for DPH. Um, uh, we are also just trying to digest the numbers that Ms. Liu presented, uh, but our takeaway is that it seems there's a persistent shortfall, shortfall with sort of little to no improvement um, in the projections over the next few years. Uh, when you compare this to our spending plan, um, we were assuming at least um, mild inflationary costs um, associated with our programs. So there's a disconnect between the revenue projection that we see sort of dropping and being flat versus um, how we project our expenditures, which um, while we're not adding new programs, will sort of continue to grow over the time as part of natural inflation. Um, and so over the course of the next year or two, I think we're going to be looking um, at ways um, that we can use the reserves and one-time sources, but it's really unclear how we can manage a gap um, like this, uh, the gap between our spending plan and our projected revenues, um, if, it if it continues this way. Um, obviously, one-time sources for ongoing programs are not ideal um, and not financially sustainable. Um, but again, it's very early. We are still getting this news um, and we're going to need to work with the mayor and controller's office uh, to better understand the projections as well as the larger citywide picture and figure out the most uh, sustainable plan moving forward. Uh, Ms. Whitley, I don't know if you have anything else to add. Uh, good morning, everyone. Gigi Whitley. I'm the Deputy Director for Administration and Finance um, for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Just want to echo everything um, um, Ms. Louie said. Um, like she said, we're we're getting this in real time as well. And, um, you know, uh, appreciate the committee's support in setting aside some one-time money. Um, for a reserve, but um, you know the persistent of the the revenue projection downward is something we hadn't yet contemplated. So 
Again, we'll be also working with the mayor's office and the controller's office closely on trying to understand what the various trade-offs are, how best to preserve programs. I think the difference with some of HSH's funding, especially with housing, where we've already placed someone in permanent supportive housing or uh, in scattered site housing, obviously we've made a funding commitment um, to that entity or, or in or that household, I should say. So um, we'll need to look, you know, what programs haven't yet scaled up, what other sources we can leverage and what other solutions we can work on with the mayor's office um, to preserve and continue these important programs. So hope to have more specifics in the coming months um, and appreciate you supporting us um, as we work through, you know, a, a, a more difficult financial situation. Thank you so much. Um, um, I'm going to transition it to Jesse at this time to lead us through committee discussion. So I'll turn it over to Jesse. That's great. And yeah, I'm going to, so I'll just sort of try to moderate a little bit here and, and keep track of hands up. I do want to underscore when Carol, um, when Ms. Lou mentioned that this is like hot out of the Excel, um, that is very true, right? Like the, uh, there were a lot of emails in the last 12 hours <laughs> about this. So um, I know the departments are still assimilating kind of the 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 news itself and then the implications of the news but you know good opportunity uh to have some questions here so i see member friedenbach's hand up and is that yeah. for are you ready okay yeah so just um are we looking at so then it looks like we're are we looking at reductions in the existing fiscal year or reductions in the um investment plan for next year only and then, so then what are we like, I guess, what's the bottom line with the, since we have, we have the reserve and the, in terms of how much would have to get reduced? Um, yeah, sure, from the revenue, on the revenue side, the current year shortfall is 30 million. And then the two budget years is almost 50 million each. So for the three years, it would be 130, 129.6 million. Um, and these are hot off the press. So I, I don't think I have any time for DPH or HSH to even think about how how the reserve would play into that. Yeah, it's because I think as a committee, I mean, we we're gonna this is, you know, the investment plan that comes out of the committee we're gonna if there's reductions we would want to have a discussion within committee and make recommendations on um what those look like so um, we would i think we kind of need to timeline that out like what i know it's all fresh and new and stuff but if we're doing current existing year i don't want to um have a situation where things are moving and then end up being um you know that there's not proper input from the committee so that would be one one thing and then the other thing is just I think we could also, I would love for us to kind of have some values that we establish as a committee that we then make decision making based on those. And so um, those could look like, um, you know, they could look like, you know, valuing um, uh, beds or places to sleep over other kinds of services. It could be, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we could, we, we could do values around 
um, the racial equity impacts and stuff like that. Um, having lived through a lot of, you know, pretty major cuts during the Great Recession under Newsom and um, some other stuff, um, there was a lot of really bad decisions made um, without a lot of input, and we're still seeing them today. Um, what the impact on on human beings has been, and so um, there is this thing around, you know, if we're making reductions. You know, the easy thing to do is the stuff that hasn't been spent yet to reduce that, but that may not necessarily be the right thing to do. So um, I just, I, I, you know, in terms of what our system looks like, because as stuff moves forward, I just kind of see it as, you know, a lot of times when we make investments, they're, they're, they're with us for a long time. And so, um, so, you know, I think um, that may be where we want to go, but there may, you know, we, but we want to, we don't want to also like, oh, this, this, it might be a really, really important need that needs to be filled. And then we haven't, because of the slowness of contracting or whatever, then it just like gets cut. So I don't, I don't want us to, I want us to be just really thoughtful. And I think having some, having some frame, like a value framework could be helpful for that process. Um, also, yeah, it's really, it's really disappointing. I think, um, you know, we're living in really challenging times and, um, and so, um, you know, given the, the level of the homeless crises, um, there's also a bigger picture around. Um, there might be things that um, we were not able to fund with the fund, but things that could be fun, funded with other resources. And so also having that enter into the conversation, um, going back to having seen massive cuts, um, you know, there was larger decisions made around, you know, how do we balance the budget? We balance the budget on the backs of folks that have, that are homeless. We balance the budget on, you know, I mean, on, you know, like, as opposed to other, other kind of areas in the city that could have been, that could have been affected. So I think there is a bigger picture here around, you know, as we enter into revenues decreasing, um, bigger picture discussion. So I would, I wouldn't want us to be, I want us to be clear that, um, that it should be like, this is a huge issue. Um, we don't, we really don't want homeless people to carry the burden of um, a change in the economy because they're the most vulnerable. Um, so, um, you know, there might be other other departments that could could get cuts to make up for it, et cetera. So, I think um, anyway, just want to put put those thoughts out there. And um, thank you so much for the information. And I'm sorry, you all are bearers of bad news. But yeah. I don't know if anyone wanted to speak to that or are there other questions from the committee for um, the budget analysis division or the financial? I, I had a quick question, Jesse. Please, please, please. Yeah, yeah um, just thinking about um, just the forecasting process and knowing that things are kind of shifting given, you know, our current climate, the potential, I hear a lot of talk about potential recession versus depression. Um, I know modeling always has, you know, there can always be, you can try to model as best as you can, but there may always be like some um, discrepancies or things that may not turn out as we expect. So I um, just wanted to hear from folks um, in terms of worst case scenario planning, um, 
that we do indeed go into a depression and not a recession and we do not see a return to, you know, folks working in downtown, the whole tech sort of situation with layoff. I mean, it just seems like a perfect storm right now of a lot of unknowns. So just wanted to hear from from folks from the departments, um, everyone, um, what could be that worst case scenario planning? What would that look like? And um, I know this is all hot off the presses, but just wanted to see if there's any thinking about how bad things could could get um, in terms of the revenue forecasting. I can, I think this might be a question to me. Okay. Um, um, thanks for the question, um, Chair Williams. Um, we haven't attempted a recession scenario for this source, um, but that is a really good idea. We do, we do, we are planning to uh, model a recession scenario in the general fund um, in a more concrete way than we have before, like a very like having very specific parameters in mind. Um, so maybe we can also do that for this fund. Um, so I don't have anything to share with you on that yet because we're still we're in the thinking stages. We just came out with our baseline forecast, so we'll we'll move shift pretty rapidly to a recession scenario. Um, and to the extent we have anything there, I, I'm happy to share with this committee. Um, I, I guess I do want to offer, I did, um, I do think I have offered to the departments or in some internal meetings, maybe anchoring to 250 million on an ongoing basis. Um, but that was not a number based on any particular analysis. It was just we close the year at 270, things could get worse. 250 is a lower number. Um, but so that's a number that we've tossed around before without analysis. But um, I'm happy to share any thinking that we have on a um, on what a worst case scenario, a worst scenario is. And by anchoring, um, do you mean sort of each year the plan would like the budget would be made around that $250 amount and if more came in that would be great news but um we'd always kind of have this from one year to the next kind of or at least until things kind of stabilize and a different picture emerges that would be sort of returned to that um anchor amount that constant amount for budget I yes, just want to make sure we're all understanding. Yeah. 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 So I think we've offered or I've mentioned at some various points in time, maybe maybe an idea could be that this that um this fund is always budgeted at $250 million on, until we're kind of proven that the economy is going to return to some higher level. But that's a more depressing picture than the one that I've we've outlined right now just now i'll just say um for me i would rather just kind of go with the the worst case scenario as opposed to you know going back and adjusting and it just seems like a lot to you know um reconfigure um based on yeah i just i i personally think that things are going to get more challenging than you know the sort of the hopeful picture, more hopeful picture of the revenue projections. So I'm all that to say is that I tend to be <laughs> I want to lean on more 
conservative side of if we feel like what's the the worst case, you know, and if we do better, that's great. I just think it seems like it would be a big challenge for departments to keep on pivoting um, in terms of, and, and folks want to know what to expect in terms of us making recommendations and, you know, having our hopes for particular interventions to roll out that we want, but then coming back again and saying, oh, it's actually worse than what we thought. Um, it just feels harder to pivot, in my opinion. So thank you. And I'm looking at the, to see if there are any other tiny hands. Yes, uh, and this is a question I think for the department uh, folks, uh, uh, Gigi and Jenny, uh, in terms of your timing within the departments on how to deal with the shortfall in those COH monies, uh, I think we as a committee are assuming we weigh in on that. And I don't know if that's a way in directly to the department, if somehow it has to go back to the mayor or the board of soups. So maybe a little clarity on process that, but also a little clarity on timing. If we want meaningful way in on how to change some of the expenditures that were budgeted, when would you need that input from us? I think this might, I might be able to at least okay. begin this piece and then the departments can, can weigh in. So yes, I think we need to start moving forward in thinking about sort of what is the process around this. The budgets, the, the departments are required to rebalance their budget and it isn't a process that goes back like to the board of supervisors or right. There's not sort of another extensive process around that rebalancing that happens. Um, I think we have been talking about, you know, sooner than later setting, you know, what does the budget process look like for the coming year and when can those conversations start to happen to really understand like what, what is the impact of last year's shortfall and then this additional shortfall um, and how we can move forward. I think, you know, obviously the the priorities, uh, Member Friedenbach called them values, which, which I liked. I've been talking about them as priorities. But those um, values that kind of go into the letter um, around the needs assessment, right? I, I think obviously we'll need to be this this um, financial situation is is obviously going to be top of mind in that as well. I don't know um, if uh, Ms. Friedenbach or, or I'm sorry if uh, Ms. Whitley or or Ms. Louie have anything to add to that. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I think what we really need to do is regroup um, and understand long-term uh, projections and work with the mayor's office um, as they begin the budget process for this upcoming fiscal year um, and understand what the time frame is. But I think I was, a, I was thinking when I posed the question more in terms of what corrections need to be made this year uh, to the current year's budget. And, and I think for me, the question would still remain, when do you guys, uh, meaning the departments, HH, HSH and DPH, need input from this committee if it's gonna have any meaningful impact on your decisions? Is that November, is that December? Uh, what's what's too late for us to weigh in on? Maybe, maybe I should be more positive. When is the right time to weigh in? That, that's a great question. Um, and I think, 
um, you know, the, the values are helpful um, for the, you know, we are implementing programs and many of them are already stood up. Um, mm -hmm. And so then, I, and we are um, actively implementing programs that are uh, still have not started yet. Um, at this point, we have not slowed down on any of that implementation. And again, it does go back to some of the values there. Um, and again, I think DPH is in a, uh, you know, with, with the reserve that we um, built uh, with one-time funds last year, I think we could ride out likely this year. Again, I need to really understand the numbers better. Um, but then I think the bigger question is, you know, do we start, do we continue this aggressive push? Um, and then uh, if, you know, should uh, revenues, um, again, this persistent shortfall um, still continue and, um we do not have, um, then Then what do we do? And I think that this is um, a conversation that we do need um, with some of the citywide contacts that Ms. Liu also put into um, her presentation. And again, working closely with the mayor's office um, on as we get budget instructions, understand what's going on as part of the larger city wide picture. This is uh, Gigi Woodley. I would, I would just add through the chair to member Reggio. Um, you know, I, I think if we can sustain the current year based on, you know, as member Friedenbach mentioned, it takes a while to get into contract. There were new programs proposed in the budget that didn't start on July 1st. We on the HSH side have $21 million that we set aside for a reserve. So I don't anticipate at this point, having just taken a quick look at the numbers that we would come back to you in the current year with input into any service reductions in the in the current year. It, in my mind, it's really going to be a budget year conversation and we'll expect, you know, budget instructions soon from the mayor's budget office and be talking to them about how this additional bad news with Prop C sort of overlays with those budget instructions. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't have a definitive answer, but it's the responsibility of the mayor to keep the budget in balance. But I think we would want to um, certainly <laughs> at the very least inform you and get your input if we were contemplating making immediate service reductions. I don't think we know enough to be there yet. And I'm hopeful that we can sustain at our current level until we can have some thoughtful conversation to make those decisions. Thank you. In keeping with some of what was just said, I think um, I will get straight to work uh, in the next uh, couple of days. Um, on, on getting sort of a, a process outlined for the coming budget, for the budget process, right? Um, we will expect direction from the mayor in December. You may recall that last year there was like a surplus, or at least we thought there was a surplus, right? And so those instructions were um, very light and, and easy to, um, to take in, I think, uh, maybe not so much this year. Um, and then just really trying to get back into those liaison conversations. I think the December meeting, it's going to be important for us to do elections and make sure that our liaison roles um, are, are are filled so that we can uh, make sure that uh, we're having, keeping the communication open. 
Member Friedenbach, is that? Are you, yeah, I just, put it, okay. I just put it back up. Yeah, um, I would like to, to. I would like to talk about it sooner than later, and if possible, in the December meeting. I just, you know, if if it ends up going to the place where there's mid-year budget cuts that are typically made unilaterally, and again, uh, really, really bad decisions um, often get made um, in that process. Um, I think it would be incredibly important to. Um, to have us in a place where we're able to weigh in um so i just yeah and i mean because for folks you know you you we have the regular budget process um and i mean i think mo most people know this but the way the city works is is that there's the regular budget process that goes through the board and the um it goes to the mayor and then gets approved by the board of supervisors um, but the way the charter works is is that the executive branch has spending authority and so part of that authority is which Gigi was kind of alluding to um was that um you know they can with the exception of behavioral health services it does require a hearing if there's any reductions there um they can make unilateral um uh reductions uh without um going through a public input process and while they can do it, it's a really, really bad idea to do it that way. And so, um, and, you know, we ended up in the recession, we lost, well, we lost 40 million in, in um, direct services um, uh, to um, mental health and um, homeless services and substance use. And um, we we started seeing you know the impacts of that. Um, a lot of the other budgets were kept whole in other departments, um, and so I just I think it's really um, really important that um, that we're in a position to be able to um, weigh in on that. Um, and um, yeah, so that that would be, I would love to start the discussion in December. I guess is what I'm roll it around to eventually. Um, and I think we can do both those things. Yeah. I'm not seeing more hands. I don't know if there are others who want to kind of jump in. Otherwise, I think we can Maybe move to public comment and, and closing. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2491 1309 then pound, then end pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. I'm checking the attendee list now for any hand raised for public comment, and I do not see any for this agenda item. Okay. Thank you so much, um, Jesse, for facilitating that portion, and, and thank you to all, everyone from the departments. I know this isn't good news, and we'll get through it together and have some more time for discussion and, and planning. So at this time, I think we do have time for um, future agenda items. Is that correct, Jesse? So folks have um, future agenda items. Well, I guess I kind of already put mine in. 
if you can say that again, member freedom. Yeah, just um, to have a discussion of um, of you know values or principles or however we want to say it in um, in consideration of reductions to the fund. Thank you so much. I know we already have our committee for the letter um, drafting to the mayor and the board of supervisors. So thank you, uh, member Ledbetter, our data officer Ledbetter and member Reggio um, for volunteering. Any other future agenda items before we have our retreat, our second day, day two of our retreat tomorrow? Yeah, I mentioned this one also in earlier conversation today, but uh, it, it, possibly at some point a discussion directly with the department on what efforts are being made to address, currently uh, being made to address uh, uh, racial equity issues. Absolutely. Thank you, Member Reggio. Any other future agenda items? Okay. If there isn't any other future agenda items, um, with that, I don't believe, Secretary Hom, we don't need to take public comment again. We I do. Believe. Um, we do. Yeah, for this <laughs> right. So I will go ahead and do that now. Uh, members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415 655 access code 2491. 132-1309, then pound, and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial three, star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note you have two minutes. I'm checking the attendee list now for any hand raised for public comment, and I do not see any for this agenda item. Okay, thank you, Secretary Hom. Um, and I just want to thank everyone for um, being here today. I know that we all have a lot of um, competing priorities um, and just really appreciate folks making space for our retreat. So we'll, we'll see you tomorrow for day two. And with that, I'll take a motion to adjourn. So moved. Was that member Catalano? Yes. Second. Is there a second? Freedom Block. Is there a second? I'm sorry. I didn't. Oh, I said second in by member Friedenbach. Sorry about that. Oh, I was talking. Thank you, member Friedenbach. So there's going to move in a second and we'll do a roll call. Secretary Hum. Member Catalano? Yes. Member Cunningham Denning? Yes. Vice Chair D'Antonio? Absent member Friedenbach? Yes. Officer Ledbetter? Yes. Officer uh, Member Miller? Absent. Member Reggio? Yes. Chair Williams? Yes. Thank you so much, everyone. We are adjourned at 11.55 a.m. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. See you tomorrow. Thank you.